great, great time of worship that y'all have had here in the Shea Worship Center. We trust that at Northridge and uh, at, at Chapel and at Cactus, and then those of you in Overflow, you've uh, had a meaningful time as well. We want to extend a special uh, just congratulations to our Cactus campus for the groundbreaking this week on the new Family Life Center. It's really exciting. Yep, you can please clap at that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Cactus is a, a very special place for many of us here at SBC, obviously for everybody at Cactus, but it was our very first multi-site, and uh, Rick Holman and his team have just done an incredible job uh, over there. God has been so good to them, and they have quite an imprint in the uh, community over there at, at Cactus, uh, on Cactus Road, and so just, we'll keep you posted on that, but it's, it's going to be an exciting new facility that they desperately need uh, to do ministry over there because God is, is so powerfully using them. Well, my staff had some fun this week uh, at pointing out that, that the sermon title today couldn't have been more timely. The sermon title is, is entitled, What's Gone Wrong? And uh, now some of you think that's in light of the election or something like that. It's, it's actually not. I, 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 titles, as many of you know, came a year ago and we're in a series uh, looking at, called The Questions God Answers, looking at the answers to questions that God has answered in the Bible and he's answered the question, what's gone wrong with humanity? So if you want to apply it to this week, you can, but we're going to be having a much more bird's eye view of humanity today in answering the question, what's really gone wrong and why are things so messed up? And it will apply to everything that's happening around us today and kind of give you a wonderful worldview on how to explain what's wrong with this world. So no more preamble, let's bow and pray and then we'll dive right in. Father God, I thank you for your word, and Lord, that I don't have to get up here today, as I've said so often, and sort of spitball what I think truth might be, but Lord, we have it recorded for us here in the Bible. And Lord, we're going to stick very close to what your word says today about humanity, and that includes us here today. And so God, I pray that we'd understand it rightly, that we would uh, have a, a cogent worldview when it comes to answering this question, what's gone wrong? God, I thank you that you have answered these questions, these seven questions we're doing in this series and so many more. We tend to ask questions of you, Lord, that you've chosen not to answer and it frustrates us, but to realize that there's all these questions you have answered and that they are life-giving and life-changing. Does our heart really good? So Lord, be with us during this time, inhabit our worship and our tender hearts before you, and teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So the year was 1989, and I was uh, finishing up my master's degree in Chicago at Trinity Seminary, and I was interning at a large church that summer in the suburbs of Chicago, or that whole year. I was newly married, we had our first child on the way, and my parents decided to drive from Cleveland to Chicago to visit us that, that weekend, or that, a weekend that fall. And I thought it was a perfect opportunity to expose them to this very large church that I was interning at because they did such a great job at preaching and teaching the Bible. As many of you know, I wasn't raised in an evangelical or an orthodox Christian home, and so this would be interesting to say the least. My dad is an off-the-charts thinker, well-read, highly educated, and he's nobody's fool. He's a hard sell on most issues, including biblical Christianity. 
And the service went great. My parents didn't really like the contemporary music. They'd be chapel people today, but they got over that pretty quickly. And the pastor did a great job of delivering a message that communicated the gospel with a lot of clarity. He talked about sin and salvation, and it all pointed to Jesus. I thought, this is perfect. As we were driving out of the parking lot without any prompting from me, my dad said to me from the back seat these words. He said, I don't know if I agree with you uh, that on everything that was shared today, Jamie, but I will grant you this. You and I both agree that humanity is a sinful mess and is in need of some serious saving. That's what he said. And let me read that last part. He said, you and I both agree that humanity is a sinful mess and in need of some serious saving. And over the last 30 years, me and my dad regularly talk about what kind of saving humanity is in need of from their sinful mess and how Jesus came to offer the solution to what has gone wrong. And though it might seem like a small victory, what my father conceded that day, I would submit to you, is extremely significant. It's extremely significant because when you look at the world around us today, most people truly don't believe that humanity's biggest problem is a sin problem. When you look around the world today, you and I live in a culture today in which the majority of people now tell me if this isn't true, would argue that humanity is basically good. You've heard that a lot, that people are basically good. And when you say, well, then what's gone wrong? They will say, well, there, there's these few bad apples that sort of ruin it for the rest of us. People like Hitler and the Taliban, or if you push them even harder, they might say those decadent Hollywood elites or the greedy Wall Street tycoons. Here's what we do today. We point fingers at people we think are really bad, and while doing that, we assume that, well, we're pretty good, and that the problem resides in them, and if we could just deal with the bad apples, then things would actually be pretty good. Uh, that's what we do. We argue that, that the problem with humanity is that there's a few bad people reigning on our parade. Now, there might be some that admit that there are problems with each and every one of us, but tell me if this isn't true, they wouldn't say that that is sin. I hear this all the time. They would say, well, we're not really sinful. We're just flawed as human beings. You ever heard that? So I'm not really sinful. Let's not use words like evil or wicked or something like that. I just got a few problems. I'm flawed. And this is why, especially here in America, the answer that most of our cultural leaders give is that we need to provide better education and more parenting techniques and counseling and therapy and psychotropic medications, all good things, mind you, but we just need to help people be less flawed because the problem with humanity is that they're flawed and we can fix that problem. But here's the deal, gang. In the midst of trying to argue that we are basically good with a few bad apples ruining it for the rest of us, or at worst, we're flawed with a need for education and therapy, what most miss, what biblical Christianity and historic Judaism have taught for millennia is that there is no sugarcoating it. Humanity is in trouble big trouble, and the core of our trouble, watch this, is in each one of us. There's no escaping it. All of us are sinful in our spirits. We're a sinful mess, and that's the problem that God puts his finger on. 
That's what the Bible says. So let's posture this in light of some of the other stuff we've been taught in this series. Kevin taught us last week in answering the question of who are we, I loved it, that we are image bearers of Almighty God, highly beloved in Christ Jesus. Man, if you caught the message, it was amazing. I, I was dialing in and thought, this is just so good that we are image bearers of Almighty God, created just a little lower than the angels. Man, we're the pinnacle of creation, God says. You and I, who are also beloved, highly loved in Christ Jesus. And yet, in answering the question, what's gone wrong, here is a good one-sentence description that God further gives, and that is that all image bearers, that's you and me, are fallen. And just so we understand what we mean by fallen, we are fallen into a condition of ingrained sinfulness. That's what the Bible says. This is where the biblical worldview clearly and unambiguously answers the question, what's gone wrong with this world? What's wrong with you and me? And it says that if you are bold enough and humble enough to affirm that you are fallen, if you can admit that, and even sinful, we'll describe that in a minute, then man, you are almost home. You're almost to where God wants you. Now, to best understand and show you what the Bible says about the fall and our core problem of universal sinfulness, I need to go to the whiteboard once again. I kind of like this whiteboard. I'm old, old school because when I can see things and the logic of things, I tend to understand them more clearly. So what we're after today is understanding what the Bible means when it says that there's this, this thing called the fall and that the fall has affected every one of us. And when you look closely at all that the Bible says, it says that there are three things that when you can understand them about our condition as human beings, you can understand the fall and why it's so serious. And the first thing is what the Bible calls sin. A word that our culture doesn't like today, many Christians even shy away from it, sin. But the Bible, for good reason, uses this word a lot. And it's not to rain on our parade or somehow make us feel any worse about ourselves than we might already feel. It's to help ground us as we will see in reality and how God answers the question, what's gone wrong with this world? Look at how the Bible says it. Probably one of the most clear passages in all the New Testament. Romans 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I know I've done this a thousand times, but I looked up that word all in the original Greek this week, and you know what it literally means? Say it with me. All. Some of you are going, how often are you going to do that? Well, about 10 more years. Uh, so maybe uh, eight if you pray really hard. But, but I, I think it's important for us to know that the, when the Bible says the word all or each and every, it's a literal rendering. It means that every human being has sinned. And here's the key, fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what does it mean to sin? It's actually a wonderful word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word hamartia, and it simply means to miss the mark, to fall short of something. It was a word used in the athletic competitions of the day. You remember the Greeks and marathons and all that stuff, the, the Olympics. And it pictures a marathon runner who's heading for a goal, a finish line, and he or she doesn't make it. 
They either fall short and stop short of the goal or they veer off course and never get to the goal or the finish line. So again, what our culture would like to say today when it comes to us and our, and our flaws is that we've all gotten to the finish line, but maybe you got there eighth or ninth and you get a you know, participation award or something like that. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible says that God gave us a finish line as image bearers. It's called his moral and relational standard. You know, the Ten Commandments and all the things that the Bible says that God wants us to do and be as his followers. And every human being has fallen short. That's what it means to sin. We've not measured up. We've fallen short of his glory. We've not gotten to the finish line. And we never will this side of heaven. Because there's something in us called sin that causes us to miss the mark. And here's what's even more kind of disturbing, but, but, but very, quite frankly, to me, it's enlightening and life-giving once I understand this, is that God says sin is so ingrained in each and every one of us that it's in us from birth. That we are born with a sinful nature, born with strikes against us, and that we are incapable of doing the good God wants us to do from the very time that we are born. Theologians call this original sin because it originates in us and it originated in God's very first creation in Adam and Eve. Look at how the Bible says it in Romans 5 verse 12. It says, through one man, that's Adam back in the garden, sin entered into the world, we get that, and death through sin, we'll see what that means in a minute, but here it is, and so death spread to all men and women because all sinned. Now what does that mean? We get the fact that death came, or that sin came through Adam when he ate the apple, he and Eve ate the apple, and then it entered into the world at that time, and death through sin, we'll see that in a second. But what does it mean when it says that death then spread to all men because all sinned? Theologians have been wrestling with this verse for thousands of years, trying to figure out exactly what it, it's getting at here. And our best guess is it's referring to two things. First is that Adam, when he sinned, represented all humanity. So that when he sinned, all of humanity fell with him. The reformers, who were great theologians, call Adam our federal head. Kind of the head of the whole federalism of humanity. And that when he sinned, he represented us. And for those of you who argue, well, that's not fair. He shouldn't have represented us. God would simply say, yeah, but if you were in his stead, you would have done the same thing. And so Adam represented us, but, but even if you don't buy that, here's what you can't escape is that then everybody from Adam ironically has done the same thing. And that's what shows us that sin is in us from birth. That everybody who's been born since Adam has not been perfect like God originally made us as his image bearers. We are all somehow flawed, but even more so sinful in, in, in how we function. Sin has affected every one of our faculties. It's in how we think. It's in how we feel. It's in how we act, obviously. And even though you might do a lot of good things, there isn't one of us here today or one of us watching today that, that doesn't admit that, that there's this thing called sin that we all fall into now and then. 
You know, one of the things that kind of convinces me that, that sin is so real and that sin is from birth is that there's a, another argument that some people try to make, and it was actually a fifth century heresy uh, called Pelagianism, in which they argue, no, 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 we're not born sinful, we're born with a blank slate. You might have heard people argue this. They were kind of born with this neutral thing inside of us in which we could do good or we could do bad. It's actually the prevailing worldview today uh, that we're born neutral, born the blank slate, and we can choose good or choose bad, and let's just hope we choose more good than bad. The only problem with that thinking is that if it really is kind of a blank slate that, that we're born with, and, and people argue that because most people are very good, that we you know, choose the good more than we choose the bad, but it's really kind of a 50-50 split, actually maybe a 60-40 split, because they argue we're actually pretty good in our spirits. Here's my question for those that believe that worldview, and it's this, that if there's seven billion people in the world today, and every one of them are born with a blank slate to be able to choose good or choose bad, don't you think there'd be just a few that would always choose the good? I mean, I don't play the lottery, but wouldn't the chances at least be minuscule that there would be someone out there that because of this blank slate could always choose the good? Statistically, that seems probable, especially if we're slanted more toward the good. But here's the problem with that. I've been searching for 57 years for just one person, just one who has not sinned, just one person who has not done something wrong. And if we're born with a blank slate, that person has to be out there somewhere and they're not to be found. Doesn't that communicate something about what's in our spirits? I've told you this before, I love my children. I love them deeply. I have three kids, Hannah, Abby, and Paul. And, uh, and, and you know, when they were born, Kim and I, you know, as good parents, tried to do the best we could. I mean, Kim and I are both, you know, relatively new Christians, and, and we believe this stuff the Bible teaches, and we wanted to raise them to be, you know, wonderful human beings and followers of Jesus and all this. And, and, and we never, like, argued in front of them. We never swore. Uh, we never showed them, you know, movies like Die Hard or anything like that when they were young and, and all of this. I mean, the only thing they ever watched was, like, Barney videos and things like that and Veggie Tales and, and all this. And, and we protected them like most parents do. And I'll never forget one day uh, when Hannah was like three and Abby was like two and, and they were playing. And, and I've told you guys this story before because it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and, and Abby was, you know, kind of on the ground playing with her toys. And Hannah walked over to her and grabbed one of her toys. And I kid you not, hit her over the head with it. I mean, just brutalized her and said, mine, and walked away. And of course, Abby's crying and things are a mess. And, I, and all I could, I didn't even intervene because I was so stunned. All I could think of was, where did she learn to do that? I never taught her. I never hit Kim in the head and said mine. <laughs> I, I never showed her a video of that. I, I, I never modeled that. We never put her around kids that did that. There was something in Hannah, and there still is. Men beware. There was something in Hannah that was self-protective, that was going to get her own, that was going to fight only for her. And the Bible says, grow up. That is our sinful human nature. And the point is, it's in you. It's in me. And it's funny when it's a toy between a two-year-old and a three-year-old. It's awful when it's a country between two African warring nations. Amen. Or, or, or when it's a, a fight for poverty in the inner city. 
or it's two parents who can't seem to get along and are heading for divorce court, or a child that's super rebellious as a teenager and about ready to go off on a drug, drug binge. I mean, it gets very serious as we get older, but it's the same problem. It, it, it's a sin problem. And, and now we're to understand, now we're ready to understand the second aspect. And you don't need much convincing of this. And that's what the Bible says, that sin leads to death. God actually warned Adam and Eve about this. Don't eat the apple or you will die. And it's funny because they didn't like eat the apple and go, ah, you know, and die on the spot. What happened was they ate the apple and all of a sudden something happened in their souls that would be death. Romans 6.23 would say it this way, for the wages of sin is death. And the question only becomes what kind of death and again, theologians who are so wonderful have been answering this for thousands of years. They, they say, well, we all physically die now. God did not create Adam and Eve to physically die, but be in the garden forever. But now that we've sinned, we all have bodies that wear out and physically die and sometimes die in terrible ways, right? And we all experience relational death. You ever had a relationship breakdown because of sin, either yours or somebody else's? where the relationship was going so great, maybe a marriage or a friendship or with your kid and, and it just slowly dies. We experience personality death. We do a lot of counseling here at this church and there have been some of you, some of us, who've been so traumatized over the years that anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, I mean, things that just grip us by the throat and don't seem to let go, that's a kind of death inside of us. And then how about even soul death? The fact that there are times that our, our souls just feel so far from God that it feels like, can anything ever help? See, here's what I know about this idea of death. Even if you're not ready to admit that, that all of humanity is a sinful mess, even you, <laughs> I've never met a human being who didn't admit that they've experienced some kind of death in their soul. We all know that. We all experience that. You have to ask yourself, where does that come from? The Bible has an answer to that. Because then you're ready to understand the final thing in the fall. And that's that not only is there sin, not only is there death, but that all of it leads to separation. To separation. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says it this way in referring to you and me before we knew Jesus. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. So before we came to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, which we're going to wrap up here within a minute and talk about a lot more next week, what the Bible makes clear is that because of our sin and the death that ensues, we are separated from God from birth and all through life until something is done about it. And again, all I know is that when humanity, when people that I rub shoulders with finally get honest in their souls, they admit that they feel that. They feel that separation from those that they love at times and even from God. I remember the year exactly, it was 1987. I was uh, working as a single guy in my church back in, in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. I was in my first year of seminary, just finished it up, and my church allowed me to be an intern that summer uh, back at my home church. And as interns, I, I had, you know, or as the single intern, I had all the, the unenviable jobs. I, I had to do the, the maintenance work and things like that. But then they also allowed me to man the desk at night for pastoral care walk-ins. 
The town I grew up in, some of you would love, it was 4,000 people. Nobody locked their doors back then, and the church was never locked. We felt the church always needed to be open for anybody that had a need. So I remember one hot summer night, I was manning the, the desk at this little church in, in my hometown, and a, a guy walked in, and, and he said, hi, my name's Mark. He said, my, my car broke down right in front of the church here. Can I use your phone? And some of you are saying, why didn't he use his cell phone? Because they weren't around then. This was 1987. And so, you know, we had landlines back then, which is a phone that has this cord attached to it, and it goes into the wall. And anyways, and, and I said, sure, the phone's over there. You can use it. Before he even could get to the phone, he said something to me. He said, you know, he said, uh, I never go to church. In fact, I, I, I've never gone to a church. And he said, uh, but I just find it a coincidence that my car breaks down precisely in front of a church. Don't you think that's kind of strange? Now, folks, have you ever asked God for an open door to share the truth of the gospel with somebody? Like, if that's not an open door, I don't know what is. The barn door is wide open. And I said, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. Let's talk. And so we sat down, and, and, and again, this is how you always want to start talking to people. You don't say, uh, how many walls are in this room, Mark? Oh, four. That reminds me of four spiritual laws. And then just sort of give them, you don't do that. You ask him about his life. And so I asked this guy about his life, and, and come to find out he was quite a remarkable man. He was about my age at that time, 24, 25. And uh, he had graduated college, Slippery Rock, over in Pennsylvania. And he'd become a, a teacher in special education. He worked with special need kids. And as I asked him about his college experience, you know, and the fraternity that he was in, I, I came to find out that this was an extremely likable guy. Quite frankly, by the world standards, an extremely good guy. Everybody liked Mark. He was just nice, he was kind, he was gentle, and he was other-centered. And, and here I am about ready to explain the gospel to him, and as a preamble to the gospel, I got to tell him that he's a sinner in need of grace. That he has this thing inside of him since birth that needs forgiven. And yet all I could think of was, here I am studying to be a pastor, and he's nicer than me. I mean, all I could think of was, this guy's better than, I'm not working with special needs kids, you know, and I'm whining about having to work at night at a church. And how do I tell this guy he's a sinner? And then it hit me. And again, let's always be Socratic about things. You always want to ask questions. So I said to him, I said, Mark, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. And I said, um, you, you said you never go to church, right? He said, no, I never go to church. And I said, do you ever think about going to church? He said, not really. And I said, do you ever think about God? He said, well, kind of. He goes, everybody thinks about God, but, but not a lot. And I said, do you ever pray? He said, not very much. And I said, do you ever read the Bible? He said, no. And uh, I said, so you wouldn't describe yourself as very religious at all? And he said, no, no, not at all. I said, but you're a really nice guy. He said, well, I try to be. I said, so would it be safe to say that while you're very welcoming and nice to other people, that you've done this to God most of your life? I wanted to be more graphic than that, but it would have been rude. I just, so I put my hand out and said, you've just done this to God. And he said, yeah, that would be accurate. And I said, so from the moment you were born and became conscious of yourself and the fact that maybe this is not all that there is to life, you've not really pursued that or him until your car breaks down in front of a church. He said, yeah, that's why I'm here. And I said, Mark, for that reason alone, the Bible says you're a sinner. <laughs> the Bible says you've gone your own way. They're all like sheep who have gone our own way, each of us to his own way. And as much as God loves you, as much as you're a good guy to those around you, 
The Bible says you need forgiveness and grace. Mark looked at me that night and he said, you're right, I do. And I prayed with him to receive Jesus Christ that night as Lord and Savior, and he was forever changed. I kept up with him for the next few years, and his life took a totally different direction. He was still a really nice guy. He didn't become mean as a Christian like some of you. He became very nice, and, and he maintained his nice spirit. I'm going to get an email out of that one. Aren't I? I'm going to get a mean email out of that one. Anna. But his life was different now. But don't miss this, gang. It all began with understanding this, the separation that came as a result of this, the death, that had its origin in this, our sin. This is the fall. It's what's wrong with humanity, but let's take it a step further. It's what's wrong with us. How does God answer the question, what's gone wrong? He says, all of you image bearers whom I love are fallen. You're fallen into a condition of ingrained sinfulness. And it's the source, God says, of your distance from him as well as all the other problems you face on planet Earth. It's why things are so messed up. Now, I've got just about 10 minutes left, and I want to do something in our time remaining that is not done often, but should literally be a yearly remedial lesson for every follower of Jesus. And that is that I want to share with you why this view of humanity is so important, practical, life-giving, and the only view of humanity that I believe gives a workable understanding of what's wrong. In other words, I want to give you an apologetic a defense as to why the Bible's, this Bible's explanation of humanity's fallenness is so critical and even soul enhancing. I mean, let's admit it. Most Christians don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about the fall. We see it as a downer and negative and not very flowery. I get it. But the reality is, is that God does talk about this and he talks about it a lot. And you and I need to be able to give an answer as to why. Why is this so important Monday through Saturday? Four things, and I'm going to put all of them up on the, on the, the board here right now, and then we're going to walk through these in kind of staccato fashion. And here it is. The fall is so important because it collates with reality. It creates humility. It causes conviction. <laughs> I love this one. It conjures up a cross. This is the answer as to why you and I should never shy away from talking about sin and the fall with each other, with our friends, with our kids, with those around us. It collates with reality. It creates humility. It causes conviction. And without it, you don't have a cross. So notice rather quickly that it collates with reality. This is how God says that I love this. He's talking to erring Israel here, but it could be erring America. And he says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. I love God's logic, don't you? He's essentially saying, get real, people. You got this thing called sin in your life. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, he says, there's a stench in my nostrils. Here he says, it, it, it's red like scarlet. It's red like crimson. It, it's 
so red, it's obvious. And though he's going to offer us forgiveness here and redemption, this is a foreplay to Jesus here. He's saying before you even get to that, you need to understand reality. And the best reality I can give you, God says, is that you are sinful and you're a mess and you're in need of grace. And this tells us that this understanding of the fall collates with reality. It's true. It's real. And again, I don't have time to go in this to detail today, but I carry this with me everywhere. It helps me make sense of all the craziness around me. When I, when I read a, something on a blog or in a newspaper or on the news sources, when I'm watching TV and I see all the decadence and the craziness and then I have to deal with it in my own life and, and my own family and all this other stuff. Again, I don't shy away from those issues. But here's the point, gang. I have an explanation as to why things are so messy. Do you? And my explanation collates with the reality around me. See, I feel bad for people who essentially argue that humanity is good. Because then when all the bad happens, how do they explain it? We saw that earlier. They explain it by saying, well, it's people like Brian. That's the problem. If Brian wasn't so bad, then they, and again, does that really make sense? Does that collate with reality? I don't think it does. I think a better explanation of reality, as much as I love you guys, I really do, is that there's something wrong with each one of us. And the Bible says there is, and yet he's going to offer you profound grace because he loves you and forgiveness because he cares for you. But you got to first admit what's real. And what's real is that you're sinful and in need of grace. Second thing this does is that it creates humility. I actually laugh at this verse. This is one of these verses in the Bible that most Christians never quote. Well, actually, they quote verses 8 and 10. They miss verse 9. It says this in James 4, 8 and 10. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So far, so good, right? Like, hey, that's pretty good. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Notice what it says next. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And then it gets positive again. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. I laugh at this because we make songs out of verses 8 and 10. You ever notice that? Like we make songs about drawing near to God and he'll draw near to you and humble yourselves and he'll exalt you. We never make a song out of verse 9. We never make a song about you sinners and double-minded and miserable and mourn and weep and, and stuff like that. And yet... You can't have verses 8 and 10 without verse 9. You'll never have humility of spirit. You'll never be able to draw near to God unless you admit who you are before him. That word double-minded is actually a great word. I love it because we all fall into it. It just means that you taught two things and were torn between them. Or you said one thing and did another. You ever done that? I think I'm going to say this to my wife. Oops, I said this. I think I'm going to say this to my boss. Oops, I said this. I, I, I think this, but I also think this. I mean, again, we're, we're all that way. And, and the Bibles are saying admit it, own it. it. It'll start to bring you down a little bit, but it's a good right sizing. The only other option is to try to make yourself out better than you are. Anybody ever done that? Uh, try to present a persona to those around you that you're not really as bad as, 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 as they might think, that you're actually better than that. It's kind of the American way. And I love how Rustin said it earlier, and Derek here in this worship service, why don't we leave that at the door and find this a safe place for you to get honest? Because when you do, it creates humility. God meets you in that and says, I love you. 
thanks for being honest. Let's start making you into the man or woman that I want you to be. So we find that, that, that when we get honest with ourselves, it collates with reality, it creates humility, and then it causes conviction. This is Jesus in John 16, 8. He says, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. He'll convict the world concerning sin. So here's the deal with this one. Do you want to be more righteous in your life? Do you want to be a better man or a better woman? Do you want to live above reproach? How about this one? Do you want to feel clean? <laughs> Any of you ever wanted that? I do. Admit what God says about you. Uh, allow his spirit to convict you when you mess up. And then own it, confess it, do your best to repent of it, and move on. And the Bible says you're going to start to live a more clean life. And here's the cool thing about doing that too, when you allow your sin to create conviction, is, is that you'll be less hypocritical in the eyes of those around you. Some of you think that the reason the world calls Christians hypocrites is because we say one thing and do another, which is the definition of a hypocrite. But I'm convinced that's not really why they call us hypocrites, because everybody does that. As we've established today, everybody's fallen, everybody's sinful, so everybody's going to say one thing and do another. That's why when people say to me, you know, when I say, hey, come to Scottsdale Bible Church, and they say, I don't want to come to that church, it's full of hypocrites. I always say, no, it's not full, we got room for one more. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> the reality being that, that we all uh, struggle with hypocrisy in our lives, right? No, the reason that they call us hypocrites, and tell me if this isn't true, is that we say one thing, and then we do another thing, and then we hide and try to cover it up. We try to say, no, no, I'm really not that, you see that? And we start to get in explaining mode and hiding mode and all this, and they just go, you're a big old hypocrite. And I wonder what would happen if we said one thing and did another, because we're always going to do that at times, and then paused, looked at the accuser in front of us and said, I messed up. I admit it, you caught me. And I feel shame, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And I, and I have nothing to plead except to own it and admit it to you. See, I've been doing that now for 40 plus years, and all I know is that though someone might say, well, you deserve what you get, or no, I'm not gonna forgive you, or what have you, nobody's ever called me a hypocrite when I've done that. Isn't that interesting? Nobody's ever said you're fake as a $3 bill. They might be mad at me. <laughs> especially if it's my wife, but, but they won't call me fake. They, 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 they admit that that's the most real response that you and I can have. You see, the fall creates in me and creates in you a sense of conviction that's a game changer in how we relate to God and each other. So it, it collates with reality. It, it, creates, it creates humility. It causes conviction. And then we're going to talk about this all next week. It conjures up a cross. Most Christians don't understand this, but it makes perfect sense once you understand the fall. Did you know that without the fall, we'd have no Jesus, at least here on earth, and we'd have no cross? The backdrop to the cross is that you and I are a sinful mess and we need forgiven. So logic would tell us that the fall conjured up in God's mind a cross and sending Jesus. And, and to be sure, it's biblical. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then Romans 6, 6, this one's powerful, for we know that our old self, our old sinful self, was crucified with Jesus, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
So Christ came. We're going to explore the depths of this next week when we answer the question, what has God done about what's gone wrong with us? Christ came to bring forgiveness and even to reverse the curse in our lives when it comes to how sin makes such a mess of it. You're never going to get away from sin completely this side of heaven, but he sure can make you a better person. Why? Because the fall conjured up a cross in God's mind. And if that's new to you, make sure you don't miss next week because we're going to do part two of this idea of what God has done about what's so wrong in this world. But before we even get to that, let's let this percolate in our souls. As I said earlier, we live in a world today in which people think that we're basically good. The Bible knows nothing about that. We live in a world today in which people say, well, maybe at worst we're flawed. The Bible takes that one a lot further. And though the news is not good news, that's the Jesus news, the good news is Jesus, the bad news is that we are sinful and fallen. But it's necessary bad news that you and I need tucked away in our spiritual tool belt to understand the world around us. Some of you are living a very messy life right now. And I'm telling you, this will take the edge off it to understand that God has known this all along and he loves you nonetheless. He's offering us a solution that solution is in Jesus. Why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word today. Lord, I could have never thought this stuff up. If I didn't know you, if I hadn't, if I hadn't been grabbed by you and Jesus 40 years ago, I'd still be thinking all these wrong things about the world around me. But God, I thank you that you have given wisdom to the foolish and taught these things to little children that we might grow up and understand you. And Father, though it's hard for some of us to hear this idea of sin and messiness and the fall and all of that, God, it is reality. It does create humility. It does cause conviction. And Lord, it sure has conjured up a cross that you gave for us that we might be forgiven. So Lord, may we never shy away from this understanding of the world and even of us. May we be humble enough to admit what's going on in our souls. And Lord, be people who are drawn closer to you and more likable to be around. That's my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.